Attention, all troops. He's alive. Alive. Welcome to the Rapnolis. As a young man, my father played baseball, and my mother's family were big fans, often gathering around to listen to it on the radio together. So as I approached a Little League age, I had this idea that I might try to play baseball. Oddly enough, no one in my family had any opinion about this. They weren't pro, they weren't against. So as a young person, I was driving this entire decision, which also meant I was a little in the dark about equipment. What I did know is that in the basement was a baseball glove, the one that had belonged to my father, and I took it with me to the tryouts. This glove would be with me for probably the first month and a half of playing, and I remember this well because the various coaches thought it was the funniest thing in the world and would reference baseball players from the past who I had never heard of in relation to my ancient glove. So I would make a play and I would hear, Way to go, Snuffy Sternweiss. Great job, Whitey Kurowski. I didn't understand any of these references, but they seemed to get a kick out of it, and of course this meant everyone on the team started to get a kick out of my old glove. Of course, you could only be called Hank Majeski so many times before you decide, who the heck is Hank Majeski? So I would go over to the library and try to find these people. Unfortunately, we didn't have a big baseball reference section at our library. So the easier solution was for me to get a new glove. And after playing for about six to eight weeks, which is way into the season at this point, my family got me a new glove. And as soon as they did, I had to relearn how to do everything. Because the old glove didn't have as much give, I had to do certain actions to hold on to the ball. This new glove was much higher tech, and it worked a lot better. So in the long run, it was a better deal for me. Although I could see that the coaches were a little depressed not seeing the kid with the antique glove running around. I had a great time in Little League. It taught me the basics of baseball, and it's a sport I've enjoyed watching ever since. I also happen to enjoy baseball movies. And on today's show, I'd like to talk to you about one of them, the film Major League. I wanna talk about the people in front of and behind the camera. We'll talk a little bit about how it's made, the music, and we'll throw in a few surprises here and there. We have an info-packed episode ahead of us, so without further ado, play ball. Major League is a 1989 comedy written and directed by David S. Ward. It stars Charlie Sheen, Wesley Snipes, Tom Berenger, Corbin Burnson, Rene Russo, Bob Uecker, and a great supporting cast. The film sprung from the mind of David Ward, 
Ward was born in 1945. He's a director and an Academy Award-winning screenwriter. He would write the screenplay for the 1973 film The Sting. Now, Ward had lived in the Cleveland suburbs as a child and had rooted for the Indians, but he was starting to get tired of them never winning again. And he's quoted as saying, I figured the only way they were ever going to win anything in my lifetime was to do a movie and they'd win. Humorously enough, within 10 years of this movie being released, the Indians would appear in the World Series twice, and then just a couple of years ago, they were in it again. In addition to The Sting and Major League, he would write other screenplays, including King Ralph, which he directed, Major League Two, which we'll talk a little bit about later, and he would co-write the screenplay for Sleepless in Seattle with Nora Ephron. Filming took place between July 1988 and October of 1988 and had many filming locations. Primarily, the stadium shots were at Milwaukee County Stadium, which, aptly enough, is in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. They also did some filming in Tucson for the spring training scenes, and some nice shots in Chicago and at Yankee Stadium in New York. And of course, they did some shooting at Municipal Stadium in Cleveland. After these messages, we'll be right back. But, since we haven't won a pennant in over 30 years, nobody recognizes us. Not even in our own hometown. That's why we carry the American Express card. No matter how far out of first we are, it's cool. You know, it keeps us from getting shut out at our favorite hotels and restaurant-type places. So you're looking for some big league club. Apply for that little green home run heater. Look what it's done for us. People still don't recognize us, but... We're contenders now. The American Express card. Don't steal home without it. And now, back to the show. The plot of the film is an underdog story. A Vegas showgirl, Rachel Phelps, who is the villain in this movie, played wonderfully by Margaret Witten, inherits the Cleveland Indians from her husband when he passes away. And she decides she doesn't want the team to be in Cleveland anymore. She would prefer to move the team to Miami. She's able to get out of the contract with the city of Cleveland if attendance would fall below a certain level. Phelps then decides she's going to make the worst team in the major league by hiring a bunch of misfits. And that means pulling in people with very specific skills, so they're very easily memorable, and putting them all together, hoping that they just fail. Unfortunately, once the team learns exactly what's going on, that galvanizes them and makes them not want to lose. It actually turns them into a winning team. And what really makes the film is that you got a lot of charismatic actors put into this film playing very likable roles. While this is a movie about baseball, there's this odd subplot that has Tom Berenger playing Jake Taylor, who's this amazing catcher whose knees have kind of bottomed out, and he's now playing in Mexico. They bring him back. When he comes to Cleveland, the former love of his life, his ex-girlfriend Lynn, played by Rene Russo, is there. And she's already with another guy, and he's there to try to insert himself into that relationship. And he's very forward in this. When I rewatch the film now, it sort of feels wedged in there, that plot line. I'm not sure it adds to it. Even at the very end, when the team is won, spoiler, they actually do win. For some reason, it sort of centers on their relationship being a big part of it. Feels kind of weird. And I mention this because of all the wonderful acting 
that happens from mainly two people, although the supporting cast is great, Charlie Sheen as Rick Wild Thing Vaughn and Wesley Snipes as the delightful Willie Mays Hayes. Every moment that we have to be in with Jake and Lynn takes away from what could be storyline dedicated to these other ball players. As I mentioned, the team finds out what the real purpose of them losing is, and because they're underdogs, they manage to turn it around, overcoming all the things that plagued each player and setting themselves on the way to becoming true winners. Weirdly enough, this film has an alternate ending where the Rachel Phelps character turns out to actually be the good guy. And you can see this alternate ending at the end when the coach of the Indians confronts her. She basically says this was her plan all along, that she knew that she would be able to bring all of these people together and that if she played the villain, that there was a good chance that even at lower prices and all these other things, that this group of misfits could make this happen. This did not test well with audiences, so it was abandoned. This story is actually based on a story about the Minnesota Twins. In the 70s, Calvin Griffith, who owned the team, when they were redoing the Metrodome Stadium in Minnesota, they had negotiated an escape clause that would allow the team to leave if attendance was under 1.4 million per season for three consecutive years. A group of investors from Tampa bought 42% of the team, and they were on the verge of moving to Florida. Fortunately for Twins fans, Griffith sold the Twins to a new owner named Carl Polad, and the Tampa investors also sold their stake to Polad. And so the Twins remained in Minneapolis. You know, ever since I came home to Minnesota, I've been hearing how the Twins are hurting without Carew. Well, don't count on it. Guys like Erickson, Goltz, and Marshall have given us some of the best pitching we've had in years. And new guys like Landro and Jackson have already helped us. And Roy Smalley's become a star. Sure, a lot of people have written us off. Well, that's okay. Right, because now we've got something to prove. Tell them like it is, Coos. Right, right. The Minnesota Twins. This year, we've got something to prove. At the end of the film, there was supposed to be a wedding scene between Jake and Lynn, but the producers decided to cut it because they thought it did put too much of a spotlight on the Jake and Lynn relationship. I agree. I felt that they put too much of it to begin with. The film has quite a cast. We'll try to go through them pretty quickly. Charlie Sheen played Ricky Wild Thing Vaughn. Charlie Sheen, probably best known to people now for his work on Two and a Half Men. And of course, he has a bit of a troubled history. The one thing that's really interesting about Charlie Sheen is he's a pretty good pitcher. You watch him play, he's got a really nice motion. He looks like a pitcher. That's because he actually was a high school pitcher and was offered a scholarship to the University of Kansas. During training, he took steroids to get as pumped up as he was. And while it might appear that he was throwing at 101 miles an hour, he actually was throwing in the high 80s, which is pretty good for an actor. And to make it look like he was throwing faster, they actually moved the pitcher's mound closer to home plate. So he was throwing from less far away. Tom Berenger played Jake Taylor. Fun fact about him, he worked as a flight attendant with Eastern Airlines in the early 70s. Corbin Burnson played Roger Dorn. Burnson's character would go on to appear in all three of the major league films. He's probably best known, though, for his work on L.A. Law. He also happens to have one of the largest snow globe collections in the world. It's reputed to be numbered at about 8,000 globes. Margaret Witten played Rachel Phelps. She does a really great job in this film. She's also in the Michael J. Fox film, The Secret of My Success. Unfortunately, she passed away in 2016. Wesley Snipes 
played Willie Mays Hayes. Wesley Snipes is probably the breakout actor in this film. Just wonderful. Before this, he had been in the movie Wildcats and did an appearance on Miami Vice. Probably the most depressing thing I learned while trying to do a show about Major League is that Wesley is not the most athletic person in the world. He does not run fast. He does not throw well. So you don't really ever see him do much in these films. But the filming is so well done that you're completely fooled. But when you rewatch it, now you're just going to see that all of his running is in slow motion, that they cut away whenever he's doing anything athletic. Dennis Haysbert played Pedro Serrano. Haysbert is probably best known nowadays for his work on 24, where he played President David Palmer. Turns out he's also a pretty good ball player. Whenever they wanted his character to hit a homer, he actually would hit a homer. And there's a great story about a scene where they were filming the climactic playoff game and all these extras are screaming. And Haysbert goes out and he got emotionally overwhelmed. And at that point, the technical advisor on the film, Steve Yeager, who's a former player, said to him, that's what it's like 162 times a year. So if you're wondering what's addicting about baseball, you can only imagine. James Gammon played Lou Brown. He's a gruff guy. Just remarkable character actor. Rene Russo played Lynn Westland. This is the beginning of Russo's career, but she would go on to work in Get Shorty and the Lethal Weapon films. Finally, Bob Euchre played Harry Doyle. Had to bring him up, mostly because from this film, it's Euchre's lines that tend to get reused. Euchre is a former player, baseball hall of famer for his broadcasting career, served as the play-by-play announcer for the Milwaukee Brewers radio broadcasts. Mr. Baseball, as he came to be known, was also the star of the TV show Mr. Belvedere. The film also has some other actors, but there's just so many of them. For authenticity, they brought in some real ball players. Pete Vukovic played Clue Hayward. Willie Mueller played Duke Simpson. And the aforementioned Steve Yeager, who was also a technical consultant, played third base coach Duke Temple. After these messages... We'll be right back. We challenged hot shot Garland Dwyer with a new Mattel Electronics baseball game. You are off! Inside, a tiny thinking computer plays like a team of pros. The computer fires a fastball. Now a curve. It's a triple. Garland's trying to stretch it home. New Pocket Baseball, one of seven sports games from Mattel Electronics. Hey, who's in there? And now, back to the show. The score of the film was done by James Newton Howard, who scored dozens of films, including the scores for Pretty Woman, The Fugitive, The Dark Knight, and many others. And while it's a pretty good score, I think most people are going to remember this film for the first song you hear, which is Burn On, as sung by Randy Newman, which is set over a montage of the city of Cleveland. Burn On is actually about Cleveland, when the city's Cuyahoga River caught fire in the past. There's a red moon rising on the Cuyahoga River. The film had a budget of $11 million and would go on to make $49.8 million at the box office. It would debut at number one when it came out. Critics might have been mixed, but the box office doesn't lie. And so it might not surprise you to learn that there are 
two sequels made for this film, both in decreasing value as they went on. The second film was Major League Two, and everybody had come back for that film except for Wesley Snipes. And a third film called Back to the Miners, which had Corbin Burnson in it. And at this point, he's the owner of the Minnesota Twins, and he's trying to turn around the Twins' AAA team, The Buzz. A script pops up from time to time, often with the original people attached in different ways. There's even been talk of trying to turn this into a television series, which could be interesting if they did it over a season. Maybe they could do it over multiple seasons as a team tries to turn itself around or jump from team to team. When one team's terrible, you move to a different one. I think it's only a matter of time before they do something along the lines of Major League, either a baseball movie or perhaps even a different sport, because people love an underdog and people love an underdog movie. And Major League is the perfect formula for that. And if you can keep it light and inject some comedy into the film, you have a real winning and uplifting combination. So I'm all for it. There's a couple of great baseball movies, maybe five or six of them. Major League is, as comedies go, right up there with The Bad News Bears as one of the funnier movies about the sport of baseball. So this summer, if your team's not doing so well and you need some inspiration, why not fire up Major League? Your team might not win, but I guarantee you, the Indians will do well every time. Thanks for listening to the show. For more retro fun, you can drop by the website at www.retroist.com. You can follow me on Twitter. I'm at twitter.com slash retroist. The music you hear on the show is by Peachy. If you have musical needs, you can email Peachy at peachy at retroist.com. If you have a moment, stop by wherever you downloaded the show and give us a rating. It really helps. Thanks for listening to the show, and I hope you have a great weekend. James Gammon is like a rougher version of Wilford Brimley, as if Wilford Brimley and a rusty old car had a child. James Gammon would be that child. This has been a retrospective production. Goodbye.